Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we speak to an economist who has studied how technology can best be used to promote development in poor countries. So actually you get all these nomads that are pretty well connected and get their weather forecasts and so on. In their case, it's the temperature, how low the temperature will be. They get that quite well in vast parts of the country. But on top of that, they have started managing to develop an export services industry. That was Stefan Durkon talking about digital connectivity in Mongolia. He contributed to a joint report by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Blavatnik School of Government in Oxford on the impact of rapid technological change in developing countries. And he came into the FT to discuss the report's findings. So, Stefan, I'd like to talk to you about technology in the developing world. And I guess the general discourse at the moment is really quite defeatist, that technology is something that is handed down to a lot of countries in Africa and Asia and South America. But your whole report is arguing the opposite of that, that these countries can be the authors of their own technological revolution. Can you tell us why that initial discourse is wrong and how you think countries can benefit from technology? Well, as you correctly observed, the discourse is often pretty negative. You know, we get endless reports on the number of jobs that will be destroyed, that it will all be coming from rich economies and then, you know, there's nothing left really for poorer economies to actually take advantage of it. I mean, there's a couple of reasons why this is wrong. So the first one is actually just conceptually. It misunderstands what technology, and in the report it's largely on digital technology, actually tends to do. It is not just all about robots and automation where on the factory floor suddenly a production process is going to be changed. Now, we had over history all along these kind of processes happening. What is actually quite important about technology, it often also leads towards different ways of connecting people, connecting markets, basically connecting capital and labour in the economy, and actually leads to different ways of organising how production and earnings takes place. And if you want to start looking at that, even in more recent phases of technological change and indeed of economic process, you know, like think of in the 1990s and 2000s when global value change started to be developed and emerged largely in East Asian countries, technology played a big part, not because of what they did on the factory floor, uh, because the technologies they were using on the factory floor are actually very reminiscent of what we've done for probably 50, 60 years in Western economies. Think of the garments, production lines and so on. But actually in the way we managed to connect quite a remote part of the world in an economy, thanks to much better logistics and a new organization of how production can take place. So something like that is happening as well now. You know, we shouldn't focus just on the robot arm that may be able to stitch some of the T-shirts. First of all, that's going to be quite hard and going to take a while. But that the connectivity will allow us to get new ways of organizing production, both within countries and globally. So we can start connecting people 
to task very long distances. We can communicate much more effectively. We can start doing all kinds of tasks in, say, the services economy that usually we thought, oh, we can only do it when we're all sitting around the table, but we can start doing all kinds of innovative outsourcing models. So once we start thinking more about the opportunities that come from the connectivity and the communication technologies that are emerging, we actually can become more positive and say, well, this is just a moment in history where countries can possibly take advantage of a new way of organizing global production, a new way of organizing global services, also within their countries to get connected. And I say, well, actually, that's a pretty positive thing. So used wisely, technology can enable development is really the message. Absolutely. And it's this emphasis on used wisely. The problem with a lot of things to do with technology is that everybody thinks these are silver bullets, that technology is all about just a collection of little magic beans or silver bullets that we can somehow start using it. And then we focus on the small, the very specific thing. Technology is effective when it is used within a whole system, whether it's in an economic system. You know, if we think of it again, the way logistics chains can become optimized because of using of platforms. You know, it's not that Deliveroo has perfected the productivity of the bicycle to get food delivered. It actually, in a very clever way, starts connecting something that can, you know, a human cycling on a bicycle, small restaurants producing things with other kinds of people. So it is that whole system that is actually much more important. Okay, let's back up a bit. Can you tell us what is the Pathways to Prosperity Commission? How did that come about? And Tell me something about what you've been doing for the past two years. Okay. So, you know, myself, I'm the academic director of this commission. It's a group of people. Melinda Gates, Sri Mulyani Indrawati, she's the finance minister of Indonesia. Straf Masiwa, who is an entrepreneur, a telecom entrepreneur in sub-Saharan Africa. They really also correctly observed that this discourse seems to be all about, it's all about Detroit, it's all about New York, it's all about San Francisco or London or maybe Sheffield. None of these discourses were based within the countries and tried to really think about what is happening. So a group of people was brought together. We have about 15 commissioners in total from academia, but actually a lot of them entrepreneurs in these countries, policymakers from developing countries and a, and a huge diverse group. And so basically we've worked in the last two years thinking with all the global leaders that are thinking about many of these issues, and we were counting up the countries and the places we've connected to or worked with or went to like 40, 50 different places where we did consultations, talked to a lot of people, especially in developing countries. And so we tried to actually get, you know, what is both going on, what is possible, but what would be needed to actually make it happen so that these countries can take advantage. Right, so let's move on to that. What do you think are the top priorities? What needs to be done to enable these countries to take the most advantage of technology? It is really crucially important that countries, first of all, take charge of this. Developing countries can't just wait until the rules of the game are being written somewhere in rich economies and are hoping that they can get some of the crumbs of all this. This is the moment where countries themselves can get some of the essential building blocks together and they best do this, not just a government leading it on its own. They need to talk to private sector. They need to talk to civil society because getting somehow the issues around the digital economy and the way it is used in government services as well, get it sorted, involve all kinds of choices. And how can they best do that? How can they get their voice heard? Well, that's partly to do with 
getting themselves a clearer view of what they want. In the work we've been doing, so we work very closely in Ethiopia, Mongolia, in South Africa, and there's several other countries where we were very closely involved. And it's very striking that at the moment, they're a bit afraid of what's happening above them. And in fact, one of the things we want them to do is to help them articulate the kind of things they should be focusing on to make it happening helping them to actually be clearer what is it that they would expect from other countries, whether it's in rules of the games or governors, or indeed if it involves a very poor country, maybe other support that they could have, but actually articulate it first. So it was an interesting moment at some point we work in Mongolia. And when I said, you know, you have all these different donors and we're talking to the prime minister and the and prime minister was saying all these different people come in and they tell us this is what you should be doing. And we told them, look, the more important thing is that here is a whole series of possibilities. Why don't you start thinking what you actually want? And then you go to outside partners or you talk to investors and you get a better sense of what it is. So it's quite surprising that as long as you don't articulate it, of course, everybody ignores you. Once you start articulating it and you bring this to global fora, suddenly you need to listen to so it. So can you give us more examples of that? What specific policies would they want to be adopted that would benefit them and were not getting adopted yeah. at the moment? There's two sets of policies of actions we think that need to be taken. One is definitely, if a country wants to have a proper voice globally, they better also start thinking what they do locally. Fundamentally, if they want to be places where an investable proposition, so to speak, something where money could come in, whether it's international money or whether it's indeed private money, then they have to have a clear sense, you know, some of the basic building blocks there. So I want to emphasize that's really crucial. But then they are in a much better position to actually say, well, we have now sorted some of the regulatory things. And for example, we're going to be quite liberal on digital payment systems. We're going to have a clear set of rules. We can do regulatory things on data that are not naive or a taxation system that are not naive in our country. But then one thing they should expect globally is to actually say, well, will you please start thinking a bit about the global tax systems so that we have a reason why we wouldn't do protectionist policies, say, on data localization or something, so that we can get some of the benefits. Surely there are things internationally need to be done, whether it's on taxation systems, also on the rules of the games that are being set. There is a lot of precedent that Rich economies, when they get worried about something, they love setting the rules of the game and they say this is for the world, but it's actually for themselves. And so we've had it in financial regulation after anti-terrorism kind of issues. And it's these kind of things that at least they start thinking and taking into account what these countries could get from it. So they have to formulate and articulate policy a lot more clearly. What else do they have to do to take advantage of the well, I mean, for their own countries, definitely, there's probably four building pieces that they need to do. They need to really think very carefully about the infrastructure. You know, without getting electricity sorted, you're not going to have any chance to take advantage of these kind of technologies. But other things as well, you know, of course, internet coverage, quality internet, but also issues to do with the soft infrastructure. They need to think about what is it that they're going to do, say, on digital ID, on issues to do with digital payment protocol. Just on that, do you think the lack of infrastructure can in some respects be an advantage? So when you're talking about the digital payment system, for example, in the West, we have a very well-developed banking system. But in countries that don't have that legacy, they can leapfrog into a... You're absolutely right. System. And so this is actually why we say, like, one of the other pillars that we need to do is to think really carefully what is the nature of your governance. You know, we know, of course, the Kenya example of M-Pesa, 
digital payment system that used 80% of the population is now connected and it's largely used for very small payments, often between individuals. So it's a really useful social good that also has excellent economic uses as well. Interestingly enough, this couldn't have emerged in the UK because of our bank regulations. This was actually meaning that telecoms were doing certain functions that we typically had identified with banking that can do it. So that actually required regulatory innovations that made it possible. And that's a good example because there's much more to do like that. So on the banking side, the digital payment side, getting the sophistication on that. I would say globally now, there's fascinating things happening in India in terms of innovations that they can do. If we think that in our system, digital payments is still a little bit, you know, complicated and systems are not necessarily interoperable. In India, they've now set up standards that are fully interoperable. That actually cuts down the transactions cost dramatically. And that's definitely another part of it. So yes, there's an opportunity to leapfrog in all kinds of ways in these things. It's interesting that each country needs to think about what its attitude is going to be in the governance, for example, to competition. And there are trade-offs. You could get one single player to emerge very quickly. That's actually happened in Kenya with Safaricom. Or you could do a bit more Tanzania, that you set the regulation a bit more for the long term, so that from the beginning, you really encourage competition in digital payment systems in an interoperable way, and you could get it. So... Competition policy, you need to think about it. You need to think of something to do with your the data governance. You know, you can't ignore it. You have to have a view. You can't simply, oh, it's too difficult. You have to have a view on your tax. You have to do it. So that's the governance. The two others are essentially getting the underlying digital systems in place. So for example, of how you would do e-governance or how would you would actually get an economy to interact. And then you need, of course, that kind of building blocks to help you to have a business environment that can actually flourish. And then finally, you need people. And you need to really think from the beginning that digital skills are important. We shouldn't overstate, not everybody needs to be a coder, but it still needs to be skills to work in this kind of more service-based economy. So in short, it's something to do with your business environment, something to do with your governance, something to do with your infrastructure, and something to do with your skills. And you need to have these four in place. I would love to hear more specific examples of this, because as you were saying at the beginning, the commission team visited a lot of countries around the world. Who is doing good, interesting things that other people can emulate? So I would say is that in terms of the kind of soft infrastructure part, India is fascinating. Of course, it took the lead with Adhar with an identification system, but it didn't do just only that. It actually developed also the universal payment interface, which actually allowed that interoperability. But it started developing a whole series of other things that they like to call India stack. Firms can take up and start using it. But what's then interesting, because it can potentially be linked to the Adhar system, to the UPI system, and you start getting some kind of soft infrastructure that is really effective. On top of that, even though the businesses didn't totally like it, they thought about the governance, or at least the Supreme Court thought about the governance. And the Supreme Court came involved and said, well, actually, we'll need to think carefully about what the protection is that you have to give to consumers. What does it mean to be a safe use of the adhar? And so on. And so it put boundaries. And in the end, we know in general that certainty helps businesses very well. So it actually constrained a bit relative to the designer's intentions, but it created clarity. Mm-hmm. And these are the kind of things. So India does good things on that. There are other countries, unlikely countries. I was struck in terms of the way businesses have responded to the opportunities. And then you go to a place like Mongolia, 
If you look at the map, it's in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it's Actually literally very large, very, a huge place, three million people occupying, I think it's twice the UK land size, mm -hmm. and three million people of which one million or so is in the city and then otherwise deeply dispersed. Now, it's an obvious place that you'd say digital should be a good thing here because cost of infrastructure of connecting people, this is a real chance of leapfrogging. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. So they actually have done remarkably well in digital connectivity first. So actually you get all these nomads that are pretty well connected and get their weather forecasts and so on. In their case, it's the temperature, how low the temperature will be. They get that quite well in vast parts of the country. But on top of that, they have started managing to develop an export services industry. You have a Mongolian firm that is actually providing coding services to Japan. But there's also another Mongolian firm that does some geospatial mapping activities. Mongolia is a country with lots of experience on mining. It's around mining, but they do it for an Australian firm in Australia. So they can actually do this over huge distances. So you see starting pockets emerging of fascinating bits that definitely have a lot of future. Okay. I guess part of the narrative has been Thomas Friedman wrote his book, The World is Flat, that technology was going to be this great democratizing force in the world. And then you had a kickback against that and people like Richard Florida were arguing that the world is in fact spiky, that more and more economic activity is going to be concentrated in fewer and fewer places, that the San Francisco's, the mm -hmm. Shanghai's, the Shenzhen's, the London's maybe, the Tokyo's, these were going to be the places that were going to dominate the world and everyone else is not really going to get much of a look in. Which school are you in? Do you think the world is becoming more flat or more spiky? I think it's hilly. <laughs> So the Thomas Friedman force, of course, is well understood. And, you know, there is this tendency that makes geography less important. And, of course, in his book, he did allude a lot to what happened in Bangalore and, indeed, some of the characters that were involved in India, you know, people like Nanda Nilikani and so on, because Bangalore is a prime example that it's definitely flatter than we thought it is, because these are people that left the US, they left Silicon Valley and other parts, and actually managed to get an innovation center there. So the decentralization of innovation becomes possible with these things. But why I would say it's hilly is that you still have concentrations. And, you know, it's not as if suddenly geography will not matter. The fact that we sit together in a room and can talk to each other, it's at the moment still better than if we were to do it via a remote link. But it becomes more likely that in five years' time, most of your podcasts will be recorded remotely, that actually 5G will create the possibility that I can see that I should hurry up with my answer or not in the kind of conversation we're having. And so that actually means the hills will be becoming lower and more hills are possible. And I'll give you a couple of examples of things I've seen. You know, Bangalore is the obvious one in a big way. In a small way, I was traveling in northern Nigeria some years ago. And I was visiting a food processing factory, actually a supplier of the bottom of the pyramid, making food packaging in small sizes so that poorer people could pay it. But it was a big factory and it was a pure private entrepreneur. This is Kano. If you look at the map, this is essentially Boko Haram territory. You know, mm. no Westerner these days would go there with massive security. 
But he was happily doing this. And he said, it used to be the case that I would travel to Germany and I would make friends with the guards of food processing factories to learn about how they were doing things because then he would take pictures. I can't do it anymore. Now I watch commercials from food processing companies that film on the factory floor and I look over the shoulder of the message and I see what companies are doing. I can use YouTube to actually learn in a decentralized way. So that's the kind of thing, you know. And at the same time, this is where Bangalore is, you know. Yes, there is a force here that with IP and the way IP law works, that there is a concentration once someone has captured something, but the innovation is more decentralized, you know. And the fact that China is doing some of these things and India is doing these things, I've seen it in the Philippines. I bet there's smaller cases of Africa as well. It becomes more decentralized. And it links back to a bit of the discourse we have. Why we emphasize so much that countries should take part of their destiny is that this is the moment in this kind of technology development is that those countries that will actually build it up properly. If we go back to the 1990s, that's when it happened with the global value chains. That's about a dozen countries took advantage of that phase of globalization in an enormous way, largely East Asian countries. At this moment, the deck is again put together and now it's again a couple of countries that can take advantage. And Maybe we'll talk about the Ulaanbaatar Valley in Mongolia as actually a dynamic value. I don't know. But this is why this is the moment to take advantage. Now, you're a former chief economist at the Department for International Development in the UK. What help can organizations such as that provide in helping to accelerate this technological revolution? So there's a couple of things that they definitely can do. One of the things is that, you know, if you really read even our work and our report, we have to be honest in saying many of the countries we try to appeal to they missed the boat last time. They didn't do some of the essential bits in the 90s to take advantage. Mombasa didn't do what port cities, Ho Chi Minh City or whatever did in other parts of the world. So this is, first of all, talking and working with countries to make sure that they are start thinking about, you know, don't try to recreate the past and just try to get only the next garment factory in, but actually start thinking about, okay, what could that look like? So helping to lengthen horizons, think about long term, provide funding for some of these countries maybe to fail, to provide ways of de-risking investors that, for example, say, why not go to Ethiopia to do the next BPO investment? Maybe it will not work, but actually we can de-risk it. So I think that's the kind of thing, you know, make sure that some of these transitions can be financed, can be de-risked, that they get access to the information and the opportunities to match it with some of these firms that will create these opportunities and so on. Now, as I understand it, the Pathways to Prosperity Commission is now winding up, but it will live on in the form of a digital economy kit yeah. which you've put together. So can you tell us about that and how are developing countries going to benefit from that? Yes. So initially, as an academic, you love sitting in your ivory tower. And I remember at one of the meetings of our commission that Melinda Gates and a few others said, you know, look, this will only have traction if you go to the country. So there we were suddenly saying we need to find countries that are willing to work with us to actually make some of this happen. And so we said, let's try to develop a toolkit and let's go out. We were amazed by the reception we got. Just a suggestion to countries, look, we'll work with you around trying to think through, first of all, the diagnostic of where you are, then some kind of draft strategic primer for your country, and then some kind of stakeholder engagements, you know, basically discussions of private sector, civil society, international investors and so on, bringing that together. They just loved it. And in a sense, it was really striking because... 
you know, you talk to prime ministers and presidents and say, look, this is actually something we need to do. We need to start thinking and preparing for the future. So we ended up working intensively with South Africa, Mongolia, and with Ethiopia, all in different ways, do some of that diagnostic, and then engage with private sector, public sector, civil society, and help to make the connections to also investors, and then helping them to frame, look, this is the kind of thing we would like, you know, maybe international support from, and to actually say, look, we start getting what we want to do. These are the kind of things that we could commit to. Can we help doing it? So we have still a, at least six other countries that hurt us doing it and now would like us to do it. So this is a resource on the web just as a process, but it's very much something that is meant to be done by countries themselves and trying to think through these building blocks, what is missing and how could we strategically work. Can you with. say which those countries are? The countries that are still interested. Mm-hmm. Well, I can at least name a few of them. So Benin, we will now work as well. We have a strong interest from Malawi. We have a strong interest from Botswana as well. And then there's a couple more that say they want to do it, but we only will want to work with them if there's a very clear commitment that they want it. There's so much that outsiders do to these countries and then just go in and extract some data and then come back. That's not what we want to do. So if there's a clear signal from the kind of political leadership to do it, because then it works well. It was an interesting thing. We were in Mongolia recently where they more or less come to the end of this process. And we were a bit worried. How much is the buy-in of it all? Okay, the prime minister turns up to the events and my Mongolian is not too good. But it was fascinating. There was a lot of discussion. I said, is this really having traction? And then I noticed an email had come in from the opposition leaders and uh, the opposition party. They said, could we please talk to you? Because actually we would like to put some of these things in our manifesto for the next election in June. And I thought, okay, clearly there is a demand for this and people see that this is important and, you know, there is buy-in there. So we were very pleased with that kind of response. So there are lots of different things moving in different directions in this world. But overall, you're pretty optimistic about the way that this technological revolution is going to play out in the developing world. I'm actually quite optimistic, and not least because, you know, in the end, we know that basically on the manufacturing side, yes, there will be more automation and things happening. But, you know, in the end, more and more economies are services-based. The more we can get global interactions around also the supply of things, huge opportunities for developing countries. And at the same time, within their countries, you know, given the kind of lack of connectivity in physical terms that sometimes is there in terms of infrastructure and so on. A digital economy gives huge opportunities to at very low cost connecting a lot of people doing all kinds of interactions and so on. It will bring down the cost of doing business in lots of these places. So that must be a good thing. And I'm actually pretty optimistic, but we just need to keep on watching this because if not done well, oh, this could be disastrous. And that's maybe a final note on it. If we start looking in the way digital economies at the moment are rolling out in a kind of business as usual, driven just from a few companies and so on, we notice that a lot of inequalities, whether it's globally or locally, seem to be just reproduced. So there is a key part here in this puzzle to actually saying at this early stage of this next wave, call it maybe of global value chains, if we don't take into account some of these underlying tensions with good governance, with good skilling and good education of people, then we'll get again a lot of people that are left behind. And then we just reproduce existing inequalities in the digital space. And that would be a hugely missed opportunity. We must leave it there. But thank you very much, Stefan. Thanks for listening. 
We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, we welcome comments and suggestions from listeners. So please email us at tectonic at ft.com and let us know what you think of the show. Tectonic is produced by Fiona Simon. <laughs>